Paul calls us to stand firm. As he does so, he reminds us, he, he teaches us, and he actually models for us what will be involved in standing firm in the gospel of grace. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And uh, Jonathan, you know, when you, you come out with a statement like that, that just begs the question, at least for me, so then what does it mean to stand firm in the gospel of grace? Well, I think at its most basic level, it means not departing from the message we have heard. Hmm. Not departing from the message we heard when we were first converted. If you can think back, if you're a believer, you think back to when you heard the gospel, you trusted the message, you trusted in Jesus, you received salvation. Do you still believe the same message? And of course, foundationally, that message, if you received a faithful proclamation of the gospel, it is the message that's proclaimed in Scripture. And, and it's not moving. And, you know, so much changes in our culture. Uh, things are always changing. Truth seems to be always up for grab. Uh, what, was, what was normative, what was accepted as true, as, you know, scientifically or ethically or morally in our culture 10 years, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, much of that has adapted and changed. Mm-hmm. But the gospel doesn't change. And we have to ask, are we still where we once were? And if you're considering the faith, uh, you need to ask, is the message I am considering, the message I have heard, is it the one that the apostles taught that Jesus proclaimed? And, and to find that out, you got to check it out in the Bible yourself. Well, we're going to get into the Bible right now. So if you can, grab a Bible and join us in the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 4 as we start a message called Slipping into Slavery. Here is Jonathan. Well, this coming Tuesday officially marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. The 500th anniversary of the day when that young German monk, Martin Luther, famously nailed his 95 theses to the door of All Saints Church at Wittenberg. In 1517, Luther came to the conviction that the medieval Roman Catholic Church had lost sight of the gospel. They'd lost sight of the freedom that we have in Christ, and they were slipping back, or or they had slipped back, into the slavery of legalism. In the Lord's goodness, Luther sparked a revolution that day, a revolution that would shake the Roman Church to its core and that would ultimately transform Europe and send the gospel of grace heading out in waves to the furthest corners of the world. It's thoroughly appropriate that on this historic week, we should be looking together at these words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4. Here in these verses, the Apostle pleads with the Galatian Christians, and he pleads with us as well not to slip back into the slavery of legalism and legalistic religion, but instead to stand firm and to stand firm in the gospel of grace. In a sense, the punchline of Paul's argument and his discussion here actually really comes just over the chapter division in chapter 5 right there at the beginning. This is what he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It's an urgent plea, and it's just as relevant now as it was 500 years ago in Luther's day or 2,000 years ago in Paul's day as well. It's just as relevant today because despite the passage of time and despite all the changes 
of culture that have taken place, the human heart actually hasn't changed one bit. We're just the same. We remain very susceptible, very open to the subtle message that our salvation depends not on Jesus alone, but on Jesus plus our own moral and our own religious record. That's our instinct. That's the tug of slavery at our hearts. That's the hold that the law can have on each one of us. And we feel that tug, don't we, each time we imagine that God is more pleased with us on those particular days where we've had a good quiet time in His Word before we've headed out to work, headed out to school, more pleased with us on those days than He is with us on days when we haven't managed it. That we're more acceptable to God, perhaps on those months where we've managed to give generously to the work of the gospel, more pleased than He is on those months, well, where we haven't quite managed it, when money's been too tight. We hear the message of law whenever we ask if our standing before God is somehow in jeopardy because we've fallen once more into that particular sin and we've failed God again. Whenever we imagine that because we're involved in costly Christian service or demanding Christian leadership, somehow we're extra special to God. Somehow He's unusually pleased with us in those seasons and at those times. In each of those thoughts and in each of those instincts, we hear echoes of law and we feel the tug of slavery because in each case, we're being drawn away from reliance on Jesus and on Him alone. It's easy to slip back into slavery, but here in our passage, Paul calls us to stand firm. As he does so, he reminds us, he, he teaches us, and he actually models for us what will be involved in standing firm in the gospel of grace. Three essentials if we're to stand firm in the gospel, and the first one is this, knowing God. Verse 1, formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and those miserable principles? The other week, I got a letter from our bank saying that our local branch was closing. It was actually the branch I'd used for years back in Toronto when I lived there, and it was still on their system as my registered branch. This particular branch was just down the road from where I grew up. I remember going there as a little kid with my, my parents on errands when I was with them. I opened my first bank account there when I was a little boy. I think I still have the deposit book in a box somewhere, my Leo's Young Savers account. I went there to deposit my first paycheck from my first summer job. I went there to make the arrangements for buying our first house. Even though I moved away quite a long time ago, the staff in the bank still ask my parents after us how we're doing, and they want to know our news. But with the growth of online banking, they're understandably making some cuts and changing things. And that branch, they're going to close down next month, and everyone will go off elsewhere. One of the features of modern life in the internet age is that many of our community and our business relationships have moved from being face-to-face, -face, local and personal, to being electronic, corporate, and thoroughly impersonal. And while we value all the efficiencies of this new age, we also sense that being a number in a system rather than a person in a relationship it's somehow a lesser thing. It is somehow a diminished thing. As human beings, we delight in relationships. We thrive on relationships, on knowing and being known. 
It's often been said that the essential difference between any worldly faith system and true faith in the gospel of grace is essentially the difference between a religion and a relationship. That idea and that distinction can be a little overused, I think, but there is something to it. There's a core of truth there. Our great privilege as children of God is that we know Him, verse 8. We truly know Him. And the reality is that all the worldly religious systems that Paul is so uh, desperately trying to combat here in Galatians, all worldly religious systems, well, they depersonalize us. They even dehumanize us. There's no relational reality underlying them. The spiritual forces behind them, the non-gods, as Paul calls them here in verse 8, they enslave us. They act upon us, as verse 9, weak and miserable principles, and here's what they do. Here's how the Galatians were playing into their hand, verse 10. The Galatians were going through religious motions, or they were in danger of doing so if they hadn't started, observing special days and months and seasons and years. They're being drawn back into a worldly form of religion, and it's weak verse 9, because it can never save, and it's miserable, verse 9, because it enslaves and never liberates. It condemns, and it never justifies. And so Paul says, why would you go back? What could possibly motivate you to go back? You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called Slipping into Slavery, looking at Galatians chapter 4 today. And we're going to get back to this message in just a moment. If you ever miss a broadcast, come and listen online. Our website is EncounterTheTruth.org, and you can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. You can also listen through the Encounter the Truth app, which is free. You'll find that at your app store, and that's a great way to connect with Jonathan's teaching when you're on the go. But whether you listen online through the app or the radio, it's all made possible through your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you a book that Jonathan has picked. It is called God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible. You can find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org. Back to the message. Here is Jonathan. Jordan Anderson was born in 1825 in Tennessee, a black child in the age of slavery. He was sold at the age of seven or eight to General Paulding Anderson of Wilson County. Jordan, his wife, and their many children lived as slaves belonging to the Anderson family until Union Army soldiers secured their release in 1864. The emancipated family moved to Dayton, Ohio, and Jordan found good work under an abolitionist employer who treated him well and paid him a fair wage. In the summer of 1865, Anderson's former owner wrote to him asking if he would come back to the plantation. They were in trouble. They couldn't harvest their crops. They needed more workers. And he said, if you come back, we're going to treat you better than we ever did before. On the 7th of August, Jordan dictated a letter of response with his new employer transcribing it for him. Reflecting on the horrors of his experience of servitude, Jordan wrote back to his old master with great dignity and grace and even a touch of wry humor. He wrote this, I got your letter and was glad to find that you had not forgotten Jordan and that you wanted me to come back and live with you again, promising to do better for me than anyone else can. I've often felt uneasy about you. I thought the Yankees would have hung you before this <laughs> for harboring the rebs they found at your house. I would have gone back to see you all, but one of the neighbors told me that Henry intended to shoot me if he ever got a chance. 
As to my freedom, which you say I can have, there's nothing to be gained on that score as I got my free papers in 1864. We have concluded to test your sincerity by asking you to send us our wages for the time we served you. At $25 a month for me, $2 a week for Mandy, our earnings would amount to $11,680. Add to this the interest for the time our wages have been kept back and deduct what you paid for our clothing and three doctor's visits to me and pulling a tooth for Mandy, and the balance will show what we are in justice entitled to. Please send the money by Adams Express in care of V. Winters Esquire, Dayton, Ohio. We trust the good maker has opened your eyes to the wrongs which you and your fathers have done to me and my fathers in making us toil for you for generations without recompense. Surely there will be a day of reckoning for those who defraud the laborer of his hire. Say howdy to George Carter and thank him for taking the pistol from you when you were shooting at me. From your old servant, Jordan Anderson. Jordan's new boss, the abolitionist, was so impressed with this letter that she sent it to the newspaper in Cincinnati who quickly published it, and it became an instant media sensation. Tremendous dignity and a touch of wit as well, but the message is so clear, isn't it? Do you think we are insane? Do you take us for fools that we would ever come back to the place of our enslavement, of our bondage? We're free now, and life is so much better. We're never coming back. Why go back to slavery, asks Paul. Why go back to impersonal religion, to being a cog in a machine, to going through useless religious motions? Why go back when you have tasted and experienced and seen freedom, the joy and the dignity of being in a relationship with God your maker, the joy of knowing him? But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are now turning back to these weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Some here will have come to Christ out of a background of ritualistic religion of one type or another. And if you've come from that kind of a background, I have absolutely no doubt that one of the great discoveries of the gospel for you was the sheer joy of knowing God, knowing him personally, knowing him as father, knowing Jesus as savior and as friend. It's a revolution. It is a discovery. It is a transformation, and you think, I would never go back. Having been slaves, we've been set free. Having been in bondage to religion, we've come into the experience of relationship. We understand who God is through His Word. We see what He has done for us in Christ. We experience the reality of His Spirit living within us. We enjoy the reality of access to the Father through the Son, our great High Priest. We know Him. But as Paul speaks of the privilege of us knowing God, he almost stops himself and he doubles back, middle of verse 9. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, at the start of a youthful romance, there may be a little confusion about who noticed who first. Did he or did she? Who made the first move? It can be a lively debate and a discussion over the years as the couple look back fondly on those early days. In the relationship between the believer and the Lord, we come to know him and he comes to know us. B both aspects are real. Both aspects are true. 
But Paul wants to highlight for us here the ultimate reality and the fundamental reality. God himself has taken the initiative to know us. He took the initiative in general terms, went back at verse 4, back at the right time, at the time of his choosing, the fullness of time, God sent his Son into the world to redeem us. He took the initiative. He did what needed to be done when we weren't even looking, when we weren't even asking. And he took a personal initiative as well. He took a personal interest in each one of us. He set his love upon us. He awakened our hearts to love him too. Paul wants to remind us that we are a people who know God and who are known by Him. There is a relationship there. There is a privilege. There is an intimacy. And Paul asks in sheer bewilderment, how is it that you're turning back? How could you? Why would you? We all know that religion is maintained by religious practice, by rite and by ritual, by repeating the right words, by giving the right offerings and doing the right things. That's religion. But the believer's relationship with the Father is sustained and it grows as we get to know Him better and better through His Word. As we hear Him speak to us through the Scriptures, as we listen to His voice, as we deepen our understanding of who He is, it happens as we spend time in prayer, speaking to Him, pouring out our heart, expressing our dependency, confessing our sin, delighting in His forgiveness. That's the heartbeat of the Christian life. That's the reality. That's how it goes. And as that relationship is healthy and growing, well, slipping back into slavery, it seems unthinkable. We could never imagine doing it. It's less of a draw. It's less of a danger. And so let me ask you, knowing that that's true, how is your relationship with the Lord at the moment? Is it healthy? Is it growing Are you investing time, time in the mornings in His Word, time in prayer, listening to Him, speaking to Him, knowing Him, and being known by Him? Knowing God, that's the first essential in standing firm in the gospel. And here's the second one, knowing God's servants. We all know that the internet has revolutionized our lives, making it possible to do a great deal online that needed to be done in person before. We've spoken about that. This is especially true, I think, in the area of education. Online education has moved very quickly from the margins of educational practice a decade ago to the very mainstream today, and it's happened so quickly. It's now estimated that over a quarter of Canadian university students take their courses online. Given that we can do so much remotely and online, it would be very easy for us in our day and age to imagine that learning Christ and growing in Christ is something that we can do on our own, something that we can do remotely from the comfort of our own home without the inconveniences and the costs of traveling to meet together without sometimes the burdens of having to engage with people we might find a little bit difficult. There are plenty of Christians out there who are going down this road and uh, moving in this direction over the last 10 years or so. A number of major online churches have been established, the largest of which draw in tens of thousands of participants every week. You can listen, you can give, you can sing along, you can even join a virtual community group, all from the comfort of your sofa, wearing your favorite pajamas, wrapped up in your favorite duvet. Many have found that idea very attractive. But it's not actually the only non-traditional model of church on the marketplace. My my favorite example of a model of non-traditional church is actually one we encountered while on a family vacation down in Florida. During our time down south, we had become quite accustomed to the American sort of drive-through lifestyle. 
drive through banks, drive through restaurants, drive through pharmacies, drive through Starbucks. But one particular drive through took us a little by surprise, and I think there's a picture of it. Our hotel was located almost directly opposite the local drive through church. <laughs> Apparently, as you enter the property, you drive by a little kiosk that looks like a Tim Hortons serving window, and there you get your uh, bulletin and you get your communion to go pack. I'm not kidding. You then tune in your radio to a broadcast where you can hear the sermon, and then you drive up to the main building where there's another picture there. There's a kind of balcony. The pastor stands out up on the second floor there. You hear his voice by radio. You don't have to get too close. You then, uh, when everything's done, you get a pastoral handshake through the window, and you go on your way to pick up your McDonald's. Attractive as it might be to do church without the complications of actually having to engage with one another without the messiness of community life, and it can be messy, the Bible simply doesn't give us that option. It doesn't give us that freedom. We don't learn Christ by distance education. We don't live as His disciples on our own. It's not a solo game. We don't grow by our own private wisdom and effort. We learn as others help us understand. We grow as our brothers and sisters encourage us and challenge us. That's the way it is now, and that's the way it's always been. That's why we're here together today. For the Galatians, their Christian life and Christian growth was closely tied up with their relationship with Paul. They learned the gospel from Paul, and they learned the model of the Christian life from him as well, from his personal example. And as they've gotten themselves into a little bit of trouble now, as we see in the Galatian letter, well, that has happened actually as they have drifted relationally from the Apostle Paul, from their mentor, their teacher. Verse 15, what has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? The Galatians are now treating Paul with skepticism because he teaches them the truth, the true apostolic gospel. They're, they're skeptical because the false missionaries who have come in have made them skeptical of Paul and his gospel. And Paul wants them to see the reality of what's going on. Verse 17, these people are zealous to win you over but not for good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. The false missionaries, the legalists, the circumcision party, they are trying to distance the Galatians from their teacher and their mentor in the faith that they might distance them from the apostolic gospel that Paul proclaims. It's a clever strategy. It's a tactical move, but it highlights a key lesson for us. The nature of the Christian life is fundamentally relational. We live and grow as followers of Jesus Christ in relationship with others, as we learn from our leaders, as we learn from one another, as we're kept accountable in community life. And that is where we have to pause today's teaching here on Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. Our message is called Slipping into Slavery. And we're going to continue to look at these three essentials of what it means to stand firm in the gospel next time. If you can't be by your radio, you don't have to miss Jonathan's teaching. You can listen to every broadcast online. Just come to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is able to stay on the station because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible. It's written by Vaughn Roberts. And Jonathan, uh, you actually have a connection with Vaughn, don't you? 
Well, I do. I've known Vaughn for quite a number of years. He was actually my my pastor in in Oxford when I was a, a university student there a number of years ago. I won't say how many years ago, but then I actually worked for Vaughn uh, for a number of years when I was based in London in ministry there. So some rich connections there, and that's one of the reasons why I feel so confident offering this book this month to listeners at Encounter the Truth. I think you'll find it a wonderful resource and a very rich help. All right, so it's called God's Big Picture. It's all about tracing the storyline of the Bible. So is this basically kind of seeing how, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, it it all fits together? It's exactly that. It puts together some of the big themes of Scripture in a very coherent and simple and accessible way. And one of the results of reading this book is that you'll find reading the, the whole of the Bible much easier because you'll be able to put things in their rightful place within the big storyline. Well, we'd love to send you a copy of this book, God's Big Picture, as our way of saying thank you for your financial support. To give a gift online, come visit our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, or call us at 833-998-7884. That might be easier to remember as 833-99-TRUTH, or again, our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. For producer Mark Bretta and our Bible teacher Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.